Nowadays, there are tons of menswear writers, but before any of them, it was only my guest. His career started in academia, so it's no surprise that his approach to menswear was, and today still is, pedagogical too. So what happens when an English professor pivots and becomes a single authority on men's fashion? You get Bruce Boyer. My name is Jeremy Kirkland, and this is Blamo, a podcast exploring the world of fashion with the people who shape it. My guest this week is writer Bruce Boyer. Bruce and I discuss his life growing up in Pennsylvania, how music shaped his life, and how writing an article about the Duke of Windsor led him to become one of the most celebrated writers in menswear. So, Mr. Bruce Boyer, you are on the podcast. How are you? Well, uh, it it's great to be here. You know, I I thought you'd never ask. What? Because, uh, well, you've had all of my buddies on. I mean, because yeah. uh, I listen to you. Uh, you know, Ethan uh, Newton, uh, Jake Grantham, and Sid Mashburn. I could go, uh, go on and on. And, uh, but the reality is, I mean, I, I'm, uh, I feel honored because I'm in such great company. I oh. mean, those guys are, I, I wouldn't say they're, they're idols because I don't know if I have any idols at my age. But they're all very astute people in the clothing business, and they're all nice guys, too. You know, I mean, because I've known them personally, so. Well, I haven't even, like, begun to list your accomplishments, which is a mile long. And also, it's funny that you had said that, like, oh, you thought I'd never ask, because for me, I was like, would Bruce even want to do this? I was like, would Bruce? And I was like, all right, forget it. I'm just going to ask. And if he says no, I'll be like, oh, yeah, sure. You know, it's up to you. Okay, so you were saving the best. (laughs) Yes, we're being very, very climactic here. (laughs) Um, But (laughs) Bruce Boyer, your your accomplishments and and who you are in terms of a mentor to me, uh, a barometer of what's good, um, an unbelievable writer and journalist and... And I know that you'll correct me, and I've done, I've tried to do my research as you have called yourself a clothing writer, but not a fashion writer. Yeah, that's true. I thought, I thought actually, I mean, you were getting so effusive there. I thought you were building up to asking me for a loan. No. But, uh, <laughs> and, um, well, uh, I'll tell you what I do. I mean, this is, this is just one of my many little tricks. Okay. Uh, to, to make me a, a, appear interesting. Um, when I'm with f- fashion people, mm-hmm. I say I'm a writer. And when I'm with writers, I say I'm a fashion person. Ah. And, but the reality is that uh, I'm not overly interested in fashion. Now, that's, in the past... 10, 20 years, that's been almost a cliche now to say, well, I'm, you know, uh, I'm anti-fashion, you right. know, which is the fashion of the moment yeah. to be anti-fashion. <laughs> um, but I've never, I've never been interested in fashion in the sense that, you know, I don't, I don't uh, sell clothes, you right. know, I don't, uh, when I write about clothes, I try to find out what's really interesting about them, you know, the history, the sociology, the psychology, uh, that kind of thing. I've never been a great one for the uh, arts for art's sake philosophy of things. You know, things don't just jump out of the trees. They're, they're, 
they evolve. They're related to things. They have a history. Clothes have a past, you know. Mm-hmm. So that's what interests me. You know, I'm not, I don't think you can find an article of mine or, a, or, or one of my books in which I say, you know, uh, take all your old stuff, go out in the yard and burn it and buy this <laughs> new stuff. Yeah. You know, that's not my thing. In fact, I've always been just the opposite. I've always said to guys, buy the best you can afford and keep it forever. Right. You know, don't let your wives or your girlfriends or whoever throw it away. You right. know, buy good stuff and keep it and take care of it and maintain it. It's a lot cheaper in the in the long run. I've often said that, you know, I'd rather have one good pair of shoes than six cheap ones. Right. Right. You know? So. Well, I want to jump back to the beginning because, you know, so first off, where are you, where are you from originally? Well, I was born and uh, bread and buttered, as they say, in a resort town at the southern end of New Jersey called Wildwood. Okay. In fact, I, I, you know, they get, they get like a million tourists or so every summer but i think i was the only person who was ever born there okay <laughs> um i spent the first couple years uh, of my life there and then my parents uh, divorced and my mother moved back to her uh, original home and moved in with her parents uh which was in uh, allentown pennsylvania so i really grew up there in fact I would say that my extended family in who lived in that region, my uh, my mother and my grandparents and my uncles and aunts and so forth, um, were uh, uh, the first great influence on uh, on my life and way of looking at things. And then secondly, would have been the place where I grew up. Allentown is um, not quite, but roughly sits in the middle between Philadelphia and New York. Mm -hmm. So we had kind of the opportunity of being influenced by both cities. Oh. And it was a small city. I think the population was maybe uh, 130,000 or so. Okay. And I thought it had all of the um, virtues of a city and, uh, and none of the detractions. But I was very happy growing up where I where I was, and it had a great influence on my life because um, I grew up in a I wouldn't say a poor neighborhood, but it was definitely blue collar. Yeah, Allentown was a pretty blue collar place. right? Blue collar yeah. place. Yeah, yeah, everybody remembers the Billy Joel song. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, but yeah, it was a blue collar. Um, they were steel workers. Yep. You know. Yeah. Uh, that kind of thing. And um, it was it was a little rough, and um, it was a kind of place as um, people on the lower rungs of the ladder understand very well. Um, respect became an important part of your life. You wanted to get respect, yeah. And I I noticed that. Um, the guys who were older than me um, 
I watched them, and you could you could see that some of them got more respect than others, and and in some cases it was because they were really tough guys. I mean, right? You didn't uh, you didn't fool around with with them, but there were other guys who who got a lot of respect, and you came to understand, or at least I did, that it was style. They they dressed in a certain way. They they talked in a certain way. They walked in a certain way. They 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 you know combed their hair in a certain way whatever whatever it was right. and those guys uh, I paid very close attention to so but anyway that's growing, well, no. growing up on the south side of Allentown well I think I mean that that definitely you know totally changes my path of uh, questions to ask too because I mean do you think that that kind of helped influence your sort of like love and admiration of clothes or, or did that not come until much later? No, totally it did. Yeah. And, and from a very early age, my mother uh, told me uh, a couple of times, I think in exasperation uh, later, but she said, she said you, you always wanted to pick out your own clothes. Interesting. And I think that was true since I was about five years old. Right. Uh, I know that... Um, when I was just a child, she always wanted me to wear shorts like other little boys do. Mm-hmm. And I wouldn't have it because the older guys wore long trousers, and that's what I wanted to wear. And you were going to get respect. Exactly. Right. Exa- well, I was a little skinny kid. <laughs> I wasn't a good fighter. Okay. I wasn't a tough guy. Did you get into fights, if you don't mind me asking? Uh, a couple. I yeah. carried a scar. I don't think it's there anymore, but... I had a scar right uh, up in the middle of my eyes, between my eyes, what, forget, that lower forehead, sure. where I was uh, hit pretty hard with a baseball bat. Oh, my Lord, Bruce. And, uh, well, that's the, kind of, that's the kind of place it was. Right. And, uh, but that didn't, that didn't happen much. Um, but, yeah, you... you uh, well, for me, as, a, as a, a skinny little kid, you know, you, you, you had to find ways to get respect, to get liked, to get, to get the girls interested in you. Sure. You know? Sure. Um, so um, I found that a good way for me was, was clothing. In fact, I, I, I was uh, a little later on when I was a, t- a, a teenager, I, uh, my nickname was Slacksy. <laughs> Wait, right? Slacksy. <laughs> and the reason was because I had so many pairs of trousers. Interesting. I mean, I was wearing, I was, I was wearing uh, banana yellow gabardines and uh, electric blue. Well, where were you tra- getting these? Oh, we, we had shops. Okay. We had shops. In Allentown? In Allentown? Or were you oh, going to absolutely. New York? Oh, okay. yeah. There were, there, were, there were a dozen clothing stores and... Uh, yeah, you could you could get the stuff. I I was uh, a teenager just at the very end of the zoot suit phenomenon. Okay. So I my uh, my first uh, clothing was um, what I think of as prol gear, engineer boots, mm. Levi's, uh, black t shirts. Uh, 
all the all the stuff that designers now have in their lines. Right, right. The roots of it are all in the early fifties. Right. Uh, in prole gear. So that was my that was my my first uh, look. And then I then I uh, when I was a little older, when we go to dances, uh, we had kind of zoot suits. Okay. And then about 1955 or 56, uh, 55, maybe even 54, um, Ivy League was the big thing. Right. And um, everybody burned their zoot suits and went out and got natural shoulder Harris tweed jackets and things. Uh, and then um, around 1957-58, um, there was the uh, British and the Italian influence. We called it at the time, and it was called by even by uh, people in the clothing business, the continental look. Interesting. You know, early Brioni kind of stuff. Right. So, I mean, by the time I was 18, I had gone through all of that stuff. Really? All of it. Absolutely. How I mean, are you funding this? Um, well, I, 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 that's a good question. I'm, <laughs> I'm trying to think. I probably did a little odd jobs. Right. And I probably begged my, my mother and my grandparents a lot. And okay. Stuff. Yeah, no, it's a good question because um, I, I re- remember a good friend of mine, his mother worked in a clothing factory mm. and she would shift, you know, under the table, some shirts to us. Oh, you know? okay. Uh, so it was that kind of thing. And, sure. and I had a, I had a, um, I had a, uh, a cousin who was actually a month or two younger than I was, but he was bigger than I was. So I got his hand-me-downs. Right. And his mother worked in a clothing factory. There were a lot of clothing factories in the, in the Lehigh Valley at that time. In yeah. fact, um, I'll give you a, a, a just a, a little uh, a nugget. Which, which you can use at, at, uh, at the next party you go to <laughs> okay. to break the ice. Uh, the Lehigh Valley in the, in the um, early 20th century was the largest producer of silk in the world. Really? Yes. Yes. There were dozens of silk mills. Huh. My grandmother worked in one. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, there were, there were clothing. Um, as late as the 1970s, there were clothing factories in and around Allentown. Jeez. Yeah. That's pretty wild. Yeah. Well, I want to jump. You had mentioned the Ivy Leagues. Yes. And, I mean, if, I, if my knowledge is correct, you ended up attending the Ivy Leagues on your own, right? Yes, going to college was my intellectual awakening. Hmm. I adored it. As much as I hated public school, I loved my college experience. I had the most wonderful professors. I, uh, I had a dual major, uh, English and philosophy. Mm-hmm. And uh, I got 
straight A's in all of those subjects. I graduated the top 10 in my class. But I adored the teachers. They, they really wore the mantle of, of learning well. Interesting. They, they, were, they were just wonderful people. And um, I became friends with most of them. And in fact, um, after I graduated and went on to, to graduate school, um, one of the uh, professors in the English department became ill. And they asked me if I would come back and fill in for him, take his courses, which oh I God. did. Um, and uh, it, was, it was just a great experience. It, it was my intellectual awakening, and I, I, can't, uh, I can't really thank them enough. Wow. It, it just is astounding. It was, it was a, an, a, I don't know, what do you call it, an epiphany? Or, I, yeah. You know, it was just, it was, it was just wonderful. That's incredible. And, and so, so you, you basically go through the, the educational system, become, you know, become a, uh, on your way to become a professor, become a professor. Yes. And then there's this moment that hits where after about seven years, you're like, <laughs> yes. no. Yes. What, can you talk about that? It's fu- funny, isn't it? I mean, <laughs> yeah. you think, what the hell is wrong with this guy? It took him seven years to figure out, you know, that he wasn't. <laughs> very good at what uh, well i was i would i think i was very good teacher okay but um you can't uh teach on that level without being a scholar too mm-hmm. you know it's 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 it, it's kind of like sin and confession you know okay. <laughs> you, um you, but you 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 really do and um I love teaching, but I, I really wasn't a good, uh, 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 a good scholar. Uh, what makes a good scholar? Well, I think you, 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 you have to have a great tolerance. Somebody once said that, um, uh, talking about doing research into uh, the uh, uh, history of the English aristocracy, that what was so interesting about the English aristocracy is that they never threw away a boring letter. <laughs> now, that gives you some idea. Yeah. You know, if, if, if you want to spend uh, 15 years reading boring letters to find that one little nugget right. about John Milton's life that nobody discovered before. Sure. You know, and I, I just... Um, I, I, I wasn't good for spending a lot of time in the, in, in the library and, uh, and doing that, that kind of uh, stuff. Um, what were you spending your time on then? Well, um, I, I guess, well, let me see. Um, let me go back. Uh, I know you got really into music. Well, jazz. That's, that's exactly where I was going. Yeah. Uh, to go back a minute. I would say, and uh, this gives you an indication, too, of, uh, of growing up on the south side of Allentown, um, that by the time I was 14 or 15, I would say all of my tastes were completely formed. Mm. Completely. In fact, I wonder sometimes if I've learned anything since then. I'm serious. Um, my uh my love of uh clothing and style mm-hmm. and um 
my great love of music, uh, of dancing, uh, reading, great love of the word. Mm-hmm. All of those things, I think, were completely set and established in me by the time I was 14 or 15. Um, so uh, when I was in college and even in graduate school, I, um, I was still going out a couple of nights a week to, uh, to the great bars around town, the great saloons, where they had some great bands, rock bands, jazz bands. Mm. Um, that kind of thing. I, we had, in fact, uh, and I've, I think I've uh, written about this. Um, there was, there were a couple of, um, ballrooms in Allentown, uh, that had been built in the big band era, you know, for, for dances. And, um, they were converted to, uh, um, to disc jockeys playing records and for teenagers and right and things like that but um you would also every once in a while get get a live band uh in those uh early rock years uh i heard uh, little richard and fats domino oh, and wow. bill dogged and and even guys like um louis armstrong and right. uh, uh things and his all-star group and things like that yeah they would just show up every once in a while and uh it 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 was wonderful and i'm not sure why but i think um it was because we were situated between philadelphia and new york that um stopping for some reason we heard all of that music right i mean um we we were aware of uh, of Latin music of uh, Tito Puente, right. for example. We danced danced to him, um, and Pres Prado and uh, stuff like that. The merengue, mambo, cha cha, um, and then we were aware of uh, of jazz. Um, it was in 1956 or 57, I would say that I discovered one of the great loves of my life, Nina Simone. Oh, right. I mean, I, I heard uh, I Love You Porgy, mm-hmm. and I was gone. I was gone. Really? I mean, she was just such an incomparable artist. My God, just, yeah. just incredible. Um, so you're, you know, you're seven years into your college career, and yeah. now you, did you just decide I want to write about clothes and then walk away? I mean, what was that conversation? Well, what, like? it, what it was, was um, uh, in the seventh year, wherever you are uh, teaching, uh, the decision has to be made by the administration whether to give you tenure or not. Oh. See? Okay. So, um I had uh, done all of my coursework, uh, I think, for the PhD, mm-hmm. but I was completely sick of grad school at that point. Right. And um, I suspected I wasn't going to finish, meaning that I wasn't going to take the exam, the final exam. I wasn't going to do the dissertation and whatever else there was was left. And um, 
I was candid about that with the administration, and they told me, well, we can't give you tenure, you know, without, right. um, without what we jokingly call the terminal degree, right. you know, right. meaning you get it and then you're intellectually dead from that for the rest of your life, I yeah. guess. Um, but anyway, um, so uh, at the end of that uh, s- spring semester, my uh, college career at that place was over, and I didn't know what to do. Um, but it was 1972, I think. Okay. Um, the Duke of Windsor had just died, mm-hmm. and um, I had had. Uh, b- long before this, a fascination with him because, um, well, I mean, first of all, he was the 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 only king I knew of that abdicated. I mean, yeah, you know, um, and uh, I, I I always assumed that uh, you know politicians uh, would 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 sell their wives to be elected. Sure, and he was doing the opposite. You know, yeah. he was he was giving up uh, the world's largest empire for a woman. Strange. On the other hand, and uh, not on the other hand, but also he was this incredible style setter. You know, I mean, he 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 was uh, the most photographed man in the first half of the twentieth century. Really? You know? Oh, there were guys. There were guys that had orders with their tailors to make every suit that he was photographed in. Wow. Yeah, I mean he was a real we we forget today because we've we've gone on to other things. But he was the great salesman of the British Empire. Um on the other hand, and this is I guess what I found fascinating too. I mean he had a reputation for being a nasty wee little man. I I yeah, yeah I've read that too. Yeah, yeah. yeah. you know, he was parsimonious and he was elitist yeah. and uh, um Kill your idols, type thing. Yeah, <laughs> you're like, yeah. well, you're great, but yeah, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> so I mean, um, even if he had uh, these other virtues, he had huge clay feet, you know. Okay. Um, but anyway, so he died, and every every magazine had an article about him, and I read these things, and in fact, I had read over the years everything that he wrote. Well, that he dictated to a writer, sure. he didn't write it himself, um, but. Uh, I, I read, um, I had read that stuff, and then I read all of these articles when he died, and I thought, you know, nobody really pinned this guy. Interesting. You know, it was just, a, isn't it romantic? You know, he gave up an empire for love and all of that. You know, it was, a, um, it, 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 it was, it was all a lot of uh, clouds and lace with not a lot of anything else to sure. it. Sure. So I said, well... You know, I've got a lot of time on my hands. I was out of a job and didn't know what I was doing. And so I sat down and I wrote, a, I wrote uh, my ideas about Windsor and what he was. I tried to approach him through his sense of style mm-hmm. and, um, and so forth. And um, so I had, about, I had an article of about four or 5,000 words. I didn't know what to do with it. And I said, well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to see if I can get it published in a magazine. My favorite magazine at the time was Town and Country um, because it had, it had great cachet mm-hmm. at that time. It really was. It was the uh, second oldest magazine in the country uh, after Harper's Weekly, I think. 
and um it it just did great articles and um it was really the the last of the great society magazines and so forth. So I said, well, I could maybe maybe I could get them interested, uh, or maybe Esquire, which in in the seventies was still had that cachet about right. it too of being a great magazine. And then thirdly, I thought about Playboy, and the oh. reason I thought about Playboy was not the centerfolds. But because somebody had told me that they paid two or three times more than anybody else. Interesting. You know? Yeah. And um, that, that sounded like something I could, I could work with. <laughs> right. <laughs> so um, I sent a query letter to Town & Country. And in about a week, uh, they got back to me and said, uh, yeah, we'll look at it. So oh. I, sent it, I sent the piece off. And in about another week, I got a I got a uh, a letter back saying we'll buy it. Wow! And uh, it had taken me a month to write the piece. Uh, as soon as I heard that, I sat down, and within a week, I wrote another piece. Right. And I I said, "Would you look at this one too?" And they said, "Yeah, sure." So they looked at that one, and they said, uh, "Yeah, we'll buy this one too." And would you? come to New York and talk with us. They had just gotten, about two years before, a new editor-in-chief, a wonderful man, uh, a truly iconic figure in men's, not in men's magazine, in magazines generally. Uh, man's name was Frank Zachary. Um, and he was already, at that time, a legend in magazines. Wow. And he was a wonderful uh, editor for magazines because he didn't insist on a house style. He was interested in new things. Um, so I met with him and the features editor and the managing editor, and they all said, um, we've never done menswear before because uh, we, we find men's fashions a little effeminate and, mm. you know, it's... We, nobody knows how to write about it, you know, and they said, but we, but, but we think you found a way, you know, because you bring your academic yeah. interest to it. You know, I still think I'm the, I'm the only guy who, who can write an article about, uh, you know, uh, the blazer or something and quote Byron right. you know? <laughs> yeah. or, or <laughs> refer to, or, 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 you know, uh, refer to Chaucer or something like that. Right. Um, uh, I really think I did start that kind of writing, you know, because fashion writing generally at that time was get rid of your old wardrobe and buy this. Right. I mean, it was little more than caption writing. Yeah. Um, so I wanted to make it important because I thought it was important. My personal history told me it was important. Yeah. You know, and uh, so I wanted to write about it more realistically in that, in that sense. And they liked that. So um, they hired me on the spot uh, to do a men's feature article every other issue. It was hour three on the runway. I stared at my watch. We're never going to take off. People were getting frustrated. Babies were crying. 
just then an announcement. Apologies, the pilot's electronic device is out of battery. We're going to have to wait for it to charge. What? I raised my hand. I think I can help. Sir, unless you're a magician, we're going to have to wait another three hours. Preposterous. But I have an away carry-on with a built-in USB battery pack. Surely it can help and charge the device. What are you talking about? Are you from the future? No. I pulled my Navy away carry-on out of the luggage compartment. The super-strong German polycarbonate was a beacon of light in the darkness. I glided up to the front of the plane on the four smooth wheels and pulled out my battery pack. Here, this should help. Everyone was in awe. Well, how do we get one of these? I said, just go to awaytravel.com forward slash blammo and use promo code blammo to save $20 off your first luggage purchase. With the pilot's device now ready to go, we took off and caught a jet stream so powerful we landed right on time. The day was saved. The pilot said, this won't ever happen again. I'm going to awaytravel.com forward slash blammo to save $20 off my first luggage purchase. We all walked off the plane a little taller that day. The future was bright. Wow. And um, I'll tell you a, a, a quick story. Sure. I was so uh, delighted. I, my, I was so off my feet that uh, at that time, uh, there was um, a very good department store right across from the town and country offices called Bonwood Teller. And they had a men's shop in there, very exclusive, very expensive. Mm -hmm. So I went out of the town and country offices, walked across the street, walked into the men's shop, and bought a Turnbull and Asser suit. Oh, my God. Tweed suit. Upgrade the job, upgrade the gear. (laughs) And, I mean, to, 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 to make this even more outlandish as the guy was measuring my inseam i realized i hadn't asked them at town and country how much i was getting paid oh whoops so (laughs) i probably blew you know three or four essays salary on that suit without even thinking about it oh my god yeah it it was it was frightening but it was a late you know it's it's I don't know what to compare it to, but it was it was frightening and elating, and uh, and I was completely out of touch with reality <laughs> on any level. I mean, I think it goes to show that like you were also the right person for the job because I think oftentimes when people are writing about stuff, you know, and also because journalists and writers usually have to cover such a wide range of topics yes sometimes you're kind of a jack of all trades and master of none right but with you i mean i don't i mean like if i know that you said that you're not the first um you know menswear like journalist but like right. you are to me and everyone else because of not just your style but um the the pure knowledge and insight that was gained from reading each mm. thing because in most cases, you know, I read your stuff. I mean, you have, you know, your Fred Astaire books and all, and all yeah. these, uh, yeah. you know, books about people that you've done. And then obviously True Style, which is my favorite in your most recent book. Um, you, I learned from it, but it's also very, very entertaining. And I think in, from my background of trying to be some sort of armchair historian with like, you know, World War II era stuff, mm-hmm. it's not very entertaining as, you know, it's just informative. 
And I think you were that writer that that bridged the gap between informative writing, but also really entertaining. Well, I I consciously try to do that's that's a conscious thing on my part in my writing. I tried to find that fine line between you know that it's overwhelmingly important and that it's not important at all. That's the one thing. And the other, the other thing I consciously work at is I try to give people a good read. Mm. Um, when I write something, I may, um, it, well, I, I don't know who uh, said it, but I think it's perfectly true. There is no such thing as writing. There's only rewriting. Um, so everything i write i write it three four five six times i wrote a i wrote a short fiction piece uh years and years ago uh for the new yorker that i think i wrote it 12 times really before i got it where i wanted and before uh the the editor at the new yorker got it you know where it was where he thought it was yeah that's that's part of it and quite frankly um i got i gotta tell you that i wallow in that i love rewriting i love rewriting critic pardon me are you your harshest critic um uh no, I think my wife probably is, because <laughs> my wife is a very good editor. Oh, I there let, you go. she edits me sometimes, okay. and she's 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 very good. She's kind, but she's strict. Interesting. So um, it, we have a perfect marriage because I'm a pretty good writer and a lousy editor, and she's a very good editor and a lousy writer. So we, there you we, go. We get along perfectly. Uh, but no, I, I wallow in rewriting because I always think that the, the, the thing about writing is to, at first, get it down as quickly as you can. Yeah. You know, I mean, if you get an idea in the middle of the night, write it down, you know, because by the morning you'll have forgotten it or it won't m- mean what it did then or whatever. But I always try to get a piece down. If I can't find the right word, I'll either put, you know, whatever word is closest or leave it blank, or whatever. Then, when I come back to to look at the piece, then I can take my time. I mean, I'll take a half an hour, an hour longer to find that right word. Yeah. You know, um, you know. I, I mean, let's say, you know, I, I, uh, I, I I'll write the word fire down, but it wasn't really a fire. It was bigger than that. So it'll take me a little while, but eventually, I'll come to the word conflagration. Whoa. That's the right word. Right. You know, and I think, uh, I, I, I just think that's important. You, 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 you want to get the right word. And, it, you know, if, it, if you're a writer and you don't want to do that, you must be a masochist. <laughs> you know, because, I mean, why would you, you know, want to write if you didn't love that kind of thing? Getting the right word in the right rhythm. The other thing that, um, I don't take any credit for. I suspect it's because I, I've always read a lot. Uh, I remember my mother saying when I was just a, 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 a young child, you must learn to read and love books because then you'll never be alone. Oh, wow. And it's true. It's yeah. true. Um, so I, I have to uh, give her credit for that. But I have, I'm lucky. I take no credit for it. 
I have kind of a natural ear for the rhythm of a sentence. Mm. I can tell when it needs another beat, another syllable, another adjective, Right. I think. Because people tell me, you, you read so easily, it just kind of slides along. Yeah, yeah, I agree. And that's because I, I, I just have an ear for it. I, can, I, don't, uh, I don't so much as see words as hear them. Do you read your pieces out loud to yourself ever? Sometimes, yeah. yes. Yes, if I'm in, if I'm in doubt okay. of the sentence, I'll right. read it out loud mm. and, uh, you know, ponder it. And so, but yeah, because that's, uh, that's important. I want to give people a good read. I think the best uh, compliment I get is from a guy who will say, you know, I don't really care that much about clothes. I certainly don't read about clothes. You know, it's not, you know, a priority with me. But I thought your book was a, interesting. It was a good read. Hmm. Right? Yeah. I mean, that's wonderful. Yeah. That's wonderful. That's true. Um, and that's the, I think that's the best compliment you can get. Yeah. I want to jump to um, your research because you have written the you know, for me, like the definitive guide, I mean, your knowledge of Cary Grant is astonishing to me. Yeah. Fred Astaire, yeah. um, you know, Brando, like every single, like Gary Cooper, Gary Cooper, obviously. Yeah. yeah. Like every single like male style icon of, you know, the, the, the classic, you know, age of style. Mm. But I mean, how did you go about researching some of these people? Cause like Fred Astaire was, relatively reclusive in, in a lot of his well um this is going to sound obvious but okay. i'm a i'm a great uh believer in what i think technically is called iconography mm. you look at the pictures right you look at the pictures um i've i've uh for example with a stare I've 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 seen all of the films dozens of times, mm-hmm. you know, and um, then I look at the still photographs and so forth, and um, I do I do look at them with um, both a historic and a critical eye. What I mean by a, a historic is that I can look at. Um, the Astaire films chronologically and see the minute changes that he made in his style, in his wardrobe, in his clothes. You know, the lapels widen a quarter of an inch and the jackets shorten a quarter of an inch, things like that. uh, I'm very good at noticing things like that, and I can remember them. I I don't know why. Again, it's not... It's... um, if 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 I weren't doing what I'm doing, it would be a totally useless talent. <laughs> because you know, I can remember. I if, if, if people don't believe me when I when I tell them, but I can remember every garment I've ever owned. What in detail? Yeah, I, that's I can't do that. Well, there's wow. no big market for it if you're not doing what I do. That that's. Very true. You know, I mean, it, it's, it's completely useless and worthless and boring. Uh, 
but I've managed to make a living out of it. There you go. You know. So, but if I look at Astaire or Cary Grant or anything, I can I can see the changes in 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 their wardrobe, and then I then I look at the 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 photos or whatever. And I, I analyze them and try to understand how things fit together, you know, right. um, how Astaire was able to get away wearing um, a chalk stripe formal double-breasted suit with a button-down collar right. and suede shoes, you know. Um, and, and once you try to get at the man and what drove him to do what he did, then you start to understand these things. So, you know, um, I, I, I guess I bring to the subject what I try to, to, to give to uh, the reader, um, a, a sociological perspective or a psychological perspective or a right. historical Perspective. In other words, I use my academic tools, the things that I've learned, yeah. to, uh, I try to bring it to bear on, uh, you know, popular culture. Right. Uh, and dressing and fashion and yeah. that. You know, it's, it's, it's um, um, although I'm not, you know, I don't pretend to be... Um, a serious fashion scholar. I don't bring that uh, rigorous approach mm. to it. I, uh, somebody like Christopher Brewerd, um, who um, is uh, a head of uh, design at uh, Edinburgh University, um, is, um, it is a wonderful scholar. I mean, he could do a, a, and has done a history of the suit, you know, which, which goes into, to, to, to great a- academic detail with up to the eyebrows footnotes, you know, and bibliography and everything. And I'm not that, that rigorous, but I, I try to, um, to do what in fact, um, 18th century philosophers tried to do. Um, 18th century philosophy was trying to make, uh, scientific discoveries intelligible to the average person. Mm. And I try to do that with clothing. I try to uh, make what I've learned about clothing easily understandable to the reader, and particularly the reader who didn't think he cared about that at all. Here's a, a question that like maybe you can help me figure out too. So I, you know, always loved and idolized like Cary Grant and McQueen and Paul Newman and all those guys. But I still can't put my finger on why. And like why is it that you know, men's fashion and, you know, the style like have really put those people on a pedestal in terms of their appearance and what is it about? Well, it? I think I mean you've 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 used the um, the proper elusive word style, you know, and yeah, I guess um, so. <laughs> I'm not quite sure about it myself. I don't think I have anything 
definitive to say about it. Mm. Um, it, it, It's certainly one of those terms um, uh, like love and freedom and courage and so forth that that's kind of ambiguous, um, except ironically enough, we all know it when we see it. Right. You know, we have a hard time saying what, as you, as you point out, what is it? But yet we know it when we see it. I'll tell you, I met once, I was going to a shirt maker on uh, 57th Street, Fred Calcagno, who had a company called Peckin Company, incredibly wonderful shirts. He made shirts for Cary Grant. He made shirts for a, a couple of other um, uh, Hollywood guys. He made shirts for uh, Nelson Rockefeller. He oh, made, wow. And one guy he made shirts for, funnily enough, was Aristotle Onassis. Wow. Uh, Onassis never bought anything but white silk shirts. Well, that's, that's fine. He, he knew what he looked sure. good in and so forth. But anyway, so I, I met Onassis once up there. And Onassis was not a particularly good-looking guy in any sense of the word. And he was built like an egg. <laughs> but man, did he look terrific. Ah, interesting. White silk shirt, navy tie, yeah. gray chalk stripe, double-breasted suit, fitted him perfectly from made by Caraccini. Yeah. Oh, black polished shoes. And he was comfortable in those clothes. He knew that that was, you know, that was it. Uh, so it, it, it's, it's got nothing to do with anything except, you know, can you carry it off? Wow. So we're starting to wrap up here, but I wanted to ask you to kind of come full circle here. As you're walking down the street, do you think that you, based on how you look and your appearance, do you think you've, you've earned the respect of yourself and other people? Yeah, I do. Um, and I say this uh, uh, immodestly, because I don't think modesty is a big virtue anyway. I couldn't care less about that um because i don't think i have any uh classic features of what you would call handsome in a guy i mean i'm short and uh, bald and you know uh, uh, every everything else um but i think i know myself well enough i know what i can wear i know the kind of messages I send by my appearance, um, that it it gives me confidence, mm-hmm. gives me assurance, um, and um, also it it makes me comfortable knowing that, and it makes other people comfortable. The the thing that I'm pulling though from the stuff that you're saying that is that's really causing me to like think about this deeper is also that's the why I'm of, here, Jeremy, to make you think <laughs> the concept of dressing and uh, to learn about yourself, because I, I, I think in me, and that's also why I asked you about the respect thing, not to be all philosophical, but more to, to feel if you've learned about yourself, because, you know, based on my experience, I would dress and, you know, I've gone through various phases, but I would dress a certain way to just tell people that I'm okay 
or to tell people that, hey, you should accept me or you should respect me or what are these things? But I think, you know, maybe not until the past couple of years did I start to dress in a way where I felt that, no, this is just who I am. Like, mm. I love white tennis shoes. I always am mm. going to wear white tennis shoes. That's what I'm the most comfortable in. That's going to be, you know, my thing. And through that, in a way that like when I am not so concerned about what I'm dressing, like that, I've, that I feel like I've made these right choices, mm. I'm actually able to be a better person to the other people that I'm interacting with. And I think that's something that you've, you've kind of hinted at, but you're communicating that I, I never really digested until now. Well, I, th- I, think, I think that's perfectly true. You know, I mean, when we're, when we're young, we're all insecure and we're all um, very vulnerable. Yeah. You know, I mean, if, if, if you're just a, a kid, you know, and you, 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 you wear something that you think is cool, but a couple of your friends or somebody, you know, s- says to you, man, that's, that's wrong. You know, that's, <laughs> right. just, that's just wrong. You know, you feel hurt. Yeah. You, you go home and you put it in the, throw it in the back of the closet, you know, and yeah. you go on to something else. We're very vulnerable uh, when we're young. But we get to a certain point, we start knowing ourselves and, you know, you say, hey, I'm going to, I just love, you know, to wear tennis shoes and, and that's my thing, you know, deal yeah. with it. Yeah. <laughs> deal with it. Yeah, I, don't, I, I don't really give a shit what you <laughs> think. You know, this is me. That's true. You know. Well, grow Bruce, a little. <laughs> Bruce, this was incredibly inspiring, and, and I can't thank you enough for your candor and, and the wisdom that you've imparted upon me and hopefully other people listening to this. I, I, I truly mean so much to me for, to chat with you. My pleasure, Jeremy. It really has been. All right, thanks. You've been listening to Blamo. Our theme music is by Tan Lines. If you like the show, rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Follow along with us on Instagram at Blamo Podcast or email us at info at blamopod.com. Still want to connect? Join our Slack group and chat with other friends of the pod. Just email us and say, hey, I want to join the Slack and we'll get you in. Thanks again. We'll see you soon.